Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I thank you for joining me again this week. As you can see, looking at your screen or looking at the title of this episode, again, we have an interview discussion. I'm not alone. So today I'm joined by my good friend, Merrick. Hello, Merrick. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. Oh, good, good. We're glad that you could join us again. For those who watch the channel consistently or listen, uh, you are no longer a stranger. This is now, I believe, your third time on. So we're happy to have you again. And today we're going to be discussing that, uh, a topic that some people might find pretty interesting. Some people might not have any idea what we're talking about. So we're going to dive into it. But the general theme of today's discussion is the limited atonement or limited atonement particular redemption, whatever people want to call it, definite atonement. We hear all sorts of names, but that general concept. And the reason why we're here today and Merrick is on with us is because recently he debated the topic whether uh, limited atonement is biblically consistent. Merrick, is there anything you wanted to say about that debate or how it went or anything before we dive into some of the questions about limited atonement? Yeah, sure. I guess I could could give a working definition of what I mean by limited atonement. Perfect. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that it is commonly in Reformed circles referred to not just as limited atonement, because that can give some false uh, understandings, but also definite atonement in particular redemption. Uh, I, I've got a quote here from the Reformed scholastic Francis Turton. He writes, mm. Christ was given as a redeemer and head, not to all men, but to a definite, there's that word definite, number who by the decree of god constitute his mystical body uh, christ perfectly acquainted with the nature and extent of the work to which he was called in order to accomplish the decree of their election in the council of his father was willing and determined to offer himself up a sacrifice to the price of his death added an efficacious and special intention to substitute himself in their room and acquire for them faith and salvation so i think what's really important about that quote there is it shows that limited atonement isn't just uh, one doctrine that is only set in one specific area, but it, it's something that really influences our understanding of salvation as a whole. Nice. Very good. And that's a, a precise theological definition. But thinking about it, we might have some viewers here who heard that and go, okay, I got some of those words, or I'm trying to piece it together. If you can maybe think, how would you explain it to just someone who isn't super interested in theology, or this is really yeah. the first time they're yeah. hearing some of those terms? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember before before I really came to believe in this doctrine, the way that it was explained to me that really made sense was that uh, through through the Old Testament into the new, God has had a particular people in mind with his dealings in salvation. Uh, we, we see Israel being uh, his, his, his elect nation in the Old Testament. This comes into the New Testament. And we see that the atonement or satisfaction that is provided for uh, sinners really is, is in, in intention. It's directed towards a particular people by his free grace, not of any anything uh, they do. It's not like they have to somehow do perform an action or, or, or ha ha have something in order to be grafted in. But it's just by his free grace that he, he chooses a particular people to redeem. And that, that's the, the extent of the atonement is directed towards that people. Very good. That's very helpful. And that was really a, a big driving point. Uh, I highly recommend people, if you haven't checked out the debate, link is in the description. But that's a point you made very clear from the start where it's one thing to talk about uh, 
just how powerful the atonement was. People speak about uh, could it have saved everyone, but here we're speaking about intent, and that gets into this broader narrative of scripture, this driving point of scripture, and that that's really a key point that I think you did a great job in the debate explaining that this isn't just a, a logical doctrine that Calvinists will hold as part of their system, but you're really working here with a total view of scripture and trying to track out what scripture teaches. And it's from that point now, some people might be hearing this, this might be their first time hearing about something like this. So let's dive a bit into the scripture side, the theology side, you already got into it a little bit, but when you're thinking about limited atonement and this intent of the cross and Christ saving a particular people, where are you really going to in scripture to get these ideas or think in this way? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great question. Pr primarily, what, what I think is that the, this doctrine of the atonement, it, it provides unity and consistency to the, the clear biblical teachings that talk about the nature of how God saves people. Mm. So when I'm finding support for this doctrine, I'm, I'm looking in the Old Testament and in God's salvific dealings with the nation of Israel, uh, something like Isaiah 53, how it talks about um, we, we were uh, were healed by, by his uh, his wounds and his piercings are what brought us salvation. And that's something that's un uniquely possible with a limited atonement view uh, where he's not being wounded for for people that are ultimately not going to be healed uh, mm -hmm. into the New Testament. We, we see clear teachings about how the intent and purpose of the atonement was a purification of a particular people. Of course, we see the, the Gentile uh, inclusion in, into this particular people, but there's no reason to think this extends to every single person without exception or to people that won't ultimately be uh, using the Isaiah 53 language healed uh, from his mm. iniquities. So I think scripture gives us a, a general uh, clear teaching. I, I think of uh, John 6 or John 10. Mm. Uh, Christ lays out the categories of election and of the sheep and how all of the Father is given to him, that's who he provides atonement for. Uh, Christ talks about laying his life down for a sheep, and then points to the Jewish leaders and says, you are not, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Mm. So I, I think that the clear passages like that is just really where we're pulling support from. We're, we're looking at the, the big, clear didactic texts, uh, which speak of how God saves sinners. Nice. Great. And, and that's something I know we're going to unpack a little bit later on, where in a debate or a question like this, the atonement, there are lots of different passages that people will want to go to or will think drive the conversation. But what you're saying here is, hey, there are some big passages where the speaker or the author is directly addressing this point about atonement or salvation. And that's where we're really going to go to find out what's going on. John 6, John 10 being prime examples from the New Testament. And I like what you were saying from Isaiah. And I think that's a, a key point that often gets missed in limited atonement is that we have some pretty clear language about what the atonement does. And there's the reality that there are some people who are are not healed. There are some people who don't receive this benefit. How do we make sense of that? And what you're saying here, it sounds like is, hey, we have some clear teaching that tells us exactly that. And I think we'll get to later on, it might help us clear, clarify some of those one-off passages or passages in other places that often will trip people up or have a lot of questions. So that's a, a great foundation. And from there, I, I think a lot of people might be asking is, hey, this sounds like 
a pretty niche Calvinist doctrine. And that's something we might hear. And I know we've spoken to people about limited atonement. That's often the first place of resistance. Oh, that's what just those Calvinists believes. No one else believes that. And this came up a lot in the debate where uh, the question was asked or the challenge was put forward. Uh, this is a new doctrine. This started with Calvin in the Reformation. No one before the six, uh, 16th century believed this sort of thing about the intent and the application of the atonement. So maybe you want to talk a bit about church history and the atonement and limited atonement. Was this something that Calvin just created? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, and something that was very funny is my opponent even contested if Calvin believed it. Uh, which I, I think is, is, is a silly question. But you're, you're basically asking if this uh, definite view of the atonement is, is, is it novel. And I think if we look at the patristic era, we certainly don't have tons of explicit affirmations uh, clearly laid out in a systematic understanding. But then again, we don't have that with name any other any other big doctrine because that's just not what was was being talked about in that day right. but what we do have is a, a good amount of, of clear affirmations of core tenets of this view of the atonement um, i think of someone like prosper of aquitaine who uh, was defending augustine against the pelagi pelagians and he basically at one point in his writings just says that a view where Christ uh, tasted death for everyone is something unique uh, to the Pelagians. Uh, it's debated if he, if he softened his view towards the end of his life, but uh, I think that that's one place we, we can certainly uh, draw from to see it in the early church. Hmm. Um, another thing we see is the, these texts, which you brought up about people might retort, you know, verses that say Christ died for all men or the, or the whole world. Um, in the patristic era, we don't see any of these texts, uh, hardly any of them, being interpreted in a way that someone arguing against limited atonement might interpret them. Mm -hmm. So First uh, John 2.2 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, all of the, from what I found, almost all of the patristic sources interpret this to mean the church spread throughout the whole world, or uh, not only in Africa as a retort to the Donatists who thought that the true church was only in Northwest Africa or something like that. Right. Um, or these all men texts like, so in, in first Timothy, when it, when it says uh, Christ wills or God wills the salvation of all men, St. John Chrysostom takes that to mean pray for Gentiles. Mm. You know, he, they, the patristics understand right then in that context, when they're living, the Jewish exclusivism that needed to be combated because it was su such a, a big a big issue. Uh, th there's also some evidence that someone like Ambrose used a sort of double jeopardy argument, uh, mm -hmm. like we talked about in Isaiah 53, that, that Christ made satisfaction for his people, and because of that, they are justified, so that can't be said about um, the reprobate. So mm -hmm. all in all, I'd say the, the extent of the atonement, it wasn't the focus of the early church fathers' writings, but we do have evidence that in some of them, there's an underdeveloped form of limited atonement. It's not novel. And uh, many of these writers laid the groundwork for what would become future expressions, particularly, particularly in the Middle Ages. I'm thinking of someone like uh, Peter Lombard, who, who talked about Christ's uh, death being sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect only. So, yeah, and, and I, I think uh, other, other aspects of salvation, we talked about how the atonement and our view of the atonement 
it, it, it gets to other parts of what we view as Calvinism and someone like Augustine is, is, is very strong in those areas. So, mm. yeah. That, that's that's very helpful. And again, I, I want to say that was very well done in the debate where uh, your opponent was Eastern Orthodox. And we know if anyone here watches knows anyone in, in Eastern Orthodoxy or similar sorts of denominations or groups, they are very much big into the early church, the church fathers. And that was an interesting part of the debate where you, uh, a Protestant, a Baptist, was able to say, hey, let's go to church history. Let's talk about it. Let's unpack it. So yeah. again, if that's something my viewers are interested in. A great first place. Check out the debate. Merrick did a wonderful job, not only unpacking it from scripture and getting into what scripture itself teaches, but also saying, hey, the early church was on board. And I, I think that was when I was learning about this doctrine myself, that was a big point, understanding that in the New Testament, there was this big shift from being sort of a Jewish sect to being a religion for all and we could see the shift in language where Jesus first came for the Jew and the Gentile we we know the rhetoric but have we actually thought about the implications where a lot of these texts that we might say hey that's the whole world in mind no it's it's speaking in a context where you suddenly have Jews having to embrace hey everyone's allowed to join and we have to go get them we have to preach to them so that's a, a neat tie-in with not only the scriptural theological treatment but also how church history, the fathers were using it. So very good there. And I, I think moving on from this point, another place where people might get tripped up or might think uh, limited atonement can't work, it can't be a thing, it can't actually be what the Bible's saying, is when they think about either the pastoral side or the evangelistic side, where people will say, hey, um, how can you like pastorally comfort someone if you don't know if Jesus died for them, if they're one of the, the limited in the limited atonement? Or how can you go preach the gospel to people if you believe Jesus only died for some people or only intends to save some people with his atonement? Those are heavy questions, big questions, but I'm sure both of us, I, I know I have, I'm sure you've heard people say those kind of things. And uh, in, in the debate, I think there was a little bit of tugging on the heartstrings and some of the language there. So I'll, I'll let you unpack that however you want. How would you respond to either pastoral or evangelistic challenges? How is limited atonement something that is pastoral, is helpful in evangelism? Whatever you want to say on that. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. Definitely something I've, I've dealt with in my my own church life. Um, my opponent asked during the debate, he, he, he said, um, you know, what pastoral benefit is this? How, how do you respond to someone that's coming to you and is doubting, you know, did Christ die for me? Um, and I basically responded, if, if, if you're really coming in genuine faith and asking that question, then, then you are numbered among one of the people that, that, that Christ died for. But mm. the, the question is, and I think I, I quoted from Augustus Toplady, but I didn't attribute the quote for him. Uh, he, he writes, would it not be a poor comfort for a distressed soul to believe that Christ died for it no more than for Judas and all the damned in hell? Mm. And that's something that, that's, that's, that's quite scary for, for me, at least. I know having struggled with assurance before I was reformed, it, it's, it's a great comfort to know that Christ had had my, my my name in mind when, when he who went to the cross. It limited home. It brings about a personal aspect that cannot believe be believed consistently on unlimited or general atonement. In Galatians two twenty, Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ, and that he was united with Christ on the cross. 
So the question is, can the unbeliever that will spend eternity in hell say that he was crucified with Christ, that he was united with Christ mm. on the cross? That, that's, that's a scary thing. I think of uh, one of Charles Wesley's hymns when he says, uh, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. I mean, you know, or amazing love, how can it be that, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What does that mean if Christ didn't have a particular people in mind when he went to the cross? It, mm. it seems to nullify the the efficacy and the, the personality to it. So I, I think when it comes to limited atonement, it's, it's really the people that, that deny it, that, that have trouble pastorally. Um, there's, there's a quote from Spurgeon that that's, that, that that's pretty good. Um, he writes, we're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ had not made satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. Hmm. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die infallibly so as to secure the salvation of anyone. We beg your pardon. When you say that you, we limit the, the death of Christ, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do that. We say that Christ di uh, died his death, that he infallibly secured the salvation of all men that no man can number, who through Christ's death uh, may not only be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Mm. Uh, we welcome you to your atonement. You may keep it, but we will never renounce ours for the sake of it. And so that's the, that's the beautiful picture we get in definite or limited atonement. We, we get this picture of a, a glorious uh, shepherd who is leading his sheep. The, the sheep don't choose the shepherd. Uh, the, the sheep can't wander away from the shepherd and then somehow forfeit their their their. Uh, their, their salvation that was uh, purchased, um, we see a beautiful picture of, of the shepherd really uh, save, saving them. Christ didn't fail partly. It to it, his atonement was a total success. Uh, his grace actually does things, and it isn't restrained by uh, human actions. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's a glorious truth, and I think the, the elect and those in, in the church can, can really rest in it, knowing that Christ died to actually secure their salvation and that um, any of their doubts or, or worry uh, can all, they can all go back to Jesus. They can all go back to his perfect work on the cross and they don't have to go back to their own ability to persevere. So, yeah. Mm. That, and, that... And in, in regards, in regards to, sorry to cut you off, but in regards yeah. to evangelism, the, the atonement of Christ was definitely sufficient for all men, but more so I think a, a Calvinistic understanding of the atonement guarantees the success of evangelism because you're not worrying, oh, maybe if I give a better gospel presentation, more people would be saved. Because we know Christ gave the the, the, the best of best presentations of, of what was to come in the gospel, and yet many of the people that listened to him uh, wouldn't believe and, and were, were, were dead in their sins because of their unbelief. So it, it's not the efficacy of the gospel presentation. It's the fact that everyone that Christ died for will ultimately be saved through the means of evangelism. And so in that sense, it, it gets rid of despair if you think you're unsuccessful in evangelism. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's helpful. And, and that's what I was going to follow up and ask where for both the pastoral and the evangelistic and 
this framework, believing in a limited atonement or a definite atonement, you can truly rest on, hey, what Christ said he did or what he did, it will accomplish what it set out to accomplish. And there's a security that in that, a comfort in that. And I think in the pastoral place, it, it really ties in and it came up in the debate. It ties in with uh, substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, where we can confidently say, if we have a believer suffering before us, and we know them to be a believer, we can confidently say, hey, John, hey, Mark, hey, whatever your name is, Christ died for you. And he knew you, you're one of his sheep, he knows you. And that is a final thing. He died for you. And when we have an unlimited atonement where Christ died for everyone who may or may not be saved, you, you run into that question of, oh, man, like what, what, comfort does that provide where you just tell the person, hey, you have to do more, believe harder, that that sort of thing. So, and of course, there's there might be a lot of pushback there and different people will point at different parts. But I think truly in my pastoral experience, that's where uh, you're able to bring up those things and able to rest in what Christ has accomplished. And on the evangelism side is very much, it sounded like to me, and maybe some other people picked up on that when people will speak about how does unconditional election another point of Calvinism people will often discuss and debate. How does that relate to missions and preaching? And uh, there, there's the classic uh, Spurgeon uh, quotes and other evangelists will talk about lifting up the shirts. There's no mark of election that you could see, but uh, you preach that to all knowing that the sheep will hear and they will come in there. There's that, uh, that popular analogy of the door, I believe, or, or something like that, where all may enter, but then you look back at the door and you see these are the elect from eternity past. And it's a similar sort of deal with uh, the atonement kind of thing like that, where there is the call to all. And you brought that up in the debate, but we know that Christ has his sheep and they will hear his voice. And that takes the pressure off of us in evangelism. So very good. And I encourage people, there's a lot here. This might be one of those episodes where you have to go back, listen to it again. We're getting, I love the, the hymn references, the Bible passages. If you need to catch those Bible passages again, just click the video back a little bit, listen again. Merrick and I will not be offended if you listen to us more than once, but uh, this is heavy stuff. And from, from that point, and we'll get into a little bit more later on, but right now, we're talking in the context of a debate you recently had. And I know that this debate, there was a lot going on, a lot of questions. The Q&A was pretty, it was pretty fascinating, the kinds of questions that you guys were both answering. And I know for the, the cross-examination, there was some robust going back and forth. So right now, I just wanna give you the opportunity, what's one or two or however many comments, whatever you wanna say about the debate that you just wanna point out a little bit more or just further discuss. I hope people will listen to it, but before they do, uh, why don't you just uh, tell us a little something that you wish maybe you could have said a bit more on or want to address in the aftermath? Yeah, the, the debate went very, very quick, yeah. much quicker than I thought it would. Um, you, you mentioned penal substitutionary atonement, and I think that's a great point because I would ultimately argue it's something that you, mu you, you must affirm definite atonement if you believe in penal substitution, at least to be consistent. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons why my opponent re rejected it ultimately. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking of people like the Socinians in the 17th century who rejected penal substitution and favored a general view of the atonement. And historically, this is some, a pattern we see. Um, but yeah, he, he was arguing against it, giving 
very popular level objections like why why did the father have to punish his son you know mm. th those sorts of things which which don't really um carry much weight but truly definite atonement is something that uh it's interconnected with different uh doctrines like our doctrine of the uh, substitution of Christ's death, or like you mentioned, unconditional election. Um, mainly throughout the debate, he gave a lot of Eastern Orthodox or Romanist-esque type uh, objections, things that spring from a rejection of Protestantism. And he, he, there were a couple of times when he would retort something against my Protestant view of scripture. Uh, I would argue that we need, he, he questioned me on my, my methodology, and I said, we need to use what's known as the analogy of faith, where we interpret the hard to read passages in light of the clear ones like John six. Yeah. And what I found to be ironic was when he was questioned on particular verses, uh, such as the nature of Christ laying down his, his, his life for his bride and the exclusivity there, he resorted to what was the clear use of the Protestant understanding of the analogy of faith. And he said, well, yeah, then that's a bit iffy, but I think there's other verses which, which talk about Christ dying for all, all people. So we have to we have to interpret that differently. And so I was just like, you know, you're, you're being a Protestant there. Um, you're, you're relying on something that, that you're arguing against. So I think a lot of what was shown is the uh, incoherence of a rejection of Sola Scriptura or the doctrine that uh, sufficient the sufficiency of Scripture uh, in that is it's the highest authority. So it, it, it really gets into a lot, lot of different doctrines. Um, I wish we would have had more time to get into it, but I, I think overall it was, it, it was good. So nice. And, and that, that's a, an important point. And I, I will do it again. I will encourage people check out this debate. Not only do you get the discussion about limited atonement, which was fascinating and fantastic, but throughout that debate, you guys did, uh, well, it was based on the challenges and questions. And I think rather naturally, I know some people in the comments were, were disappointed it was going all over the place. At, at times, I will admit, I was a little frustrated. I wanted to hear about limited atonement, but there was some good defense of Sola Scriptura. And as you point out, when you're diving into scripture and you're diving into uh, interpretation of scripture, I think a lot of the times in our conversations, we'll realize that people can't help but be Protestants when you're dealing with the word of God, that they're, it, the word of God demands to be treated in such a way. And that's how people will live it out, whether they intend to or not. And I, I won't go too much down that path, but people should check it out. And that that's something I think that's really valuable. Not only did you see this theological discussion on a particular topic, you saw two different worldviews, essentially, two different views of scripture and church history colliding. And that that was just a, a debate itself. And I know, and I, I know many of us are hoping that we'll see you debating more of these topics. And I think you might have mentioned sola fide, faith alone, that something like that would be very exciting and other topics. But that that's good and great stuff that we love to see defended. So before we move on here into our closing, there's one question that I, I didn't uh, run by you before, but we're here now. I know that uh, most of my viewers and listeners are probably uh, people in the Reformed Protestant Baptist sort of camp, and they're probably hearing this and they're they're saying amen, or maybe they're not sure, but they're they're happy to consider it. But we might have some people who are hearing this and going, wow, this is just out there. I've never heard this before. I'm going to have to do more research. I'm going to have to look in deeper if I want to seriously engage with this or decide whether this is worth my time to, to think about or to debate that sort of thing. So right now, if there are some resources that 
you found helpful or you know have helped other people that you want to recommend, I'm sure lots of people listening would appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Um, first off, I would suggest just, just reading uh, the scriptures mentioned and others that, that talk about very clearly what Christ's death accomplished and what his intention was. In regards to resources, uh, the the volume I really like, it's pretty short. John Murray has a volume. He's a Princetonian. Uh, he, it's called uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It, it's a very good volume. Um, if you're looking for something more in-depth, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, The Mouthful by John Owen mm-hmm. is also very excellent. And then there's the uh, m- more modern a uh, huge volume titled um, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, which is just a bunch of essays on particular topics uh, w- within this. And, and that, that, that's, that's pretty good, too. Nice. Um, yeah, that and um, may- maybe something like reading what a Reformed Confession states on this, like the 1689 or, or a commentary on that w- would also be pretty good. Nice. Excellent. And for those wondering, don't worry, I will go back and listen to this and make sure links to all, all those things just mentioned are in the description. And I'll probably even get a links to or links to at least some of the passages that you mentioned to make sure people are, are equipped to check this out. And that's something I think we would both encourage. Don't just listen to us now and think, oh, they seem pretty confident and I'm going to believe this. Please check it out for yourself. Search the scripture and uh, hear what hear what god has to say in his word and i think uh that that's the strongest thing that you could do and there are lots of people who will help you think through it and make those cases and that's what we love that's why we love theology that's why we love church history we're doing this together in community so that that's been excellent thank you so much merrick for joining us again people check out merrick's debates on the gospel truth uh he's done several now marlon is out there doing great work getting these excellent debates together some of them are just wild but most of them are just really amazing you have a lot of wonderful people debating and uh debating for good reasons that that's the best part where i could say for the vast majority whether i agree or disagree with the people you have honest good intention people there just wanting to debate what what has God said and how should we believe the Bible and all sorts of topics in between there. So Merrick, again, thank you for coming on and speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks, Christian. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And I, I will leave it there. There's a lot more that could be said. There's a lot that could be said on this topic, but that's it for now here on Christian's Colloquy. I hope that all my viewers and listeners enjoyed. And please, if you have any questions for Merrick or for myself, hopefully more for Merrick, he's he's the expert on this topic, leave them in the description or the the what what do you call it? Comment box down below. That's it. He will I will make sure that he sees any questions in there. I don't care how hard they are since it's him answering them, but that's it for now. I hope to see you all again next time on Christian's Colloquy. Take care.